right. Welcome hey. back. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> again. <laughs> right. Back at it again. With Adrian this time. Yes. Our feminist hot dog bestie. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. I'm so honored that you asked me. Absolutely. We're honored that you, honored. you know, agreed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So welcome back to our series, A Question for the Culture. Um, we're here talking with Adrian from Feminist Hot Dog, which if you haven't checked out Feminist Hot Dog yet, you should on all streaming platforms. It's awesome. What are you waiting for? Honestly. It's great. And yeah. it's all coming from down here in Alabama. So yes, you know right you love here. to see it. Mm-hmm. So Adrian is going to be talking with us about intersectionality. Um, for those who don't know what intersectionality is, she's going to break that down for us. And she's also going to be talking about um, other things related to Black Lives Matter. So with that, Adrian, take over. Well, thank you so much. And I just really want to acknowledge that um, I love it when I meet people in a social justice setting. And that's how I met both of you is that we were both in the same place, we're all three at the same place at the same time to talk about intersectionality and social justice. So it was like instant, you know, instant connection, which I think I think is awesome. So yeah. yes, I met Samra and Alana at the She Podcast's first, very first ever She Podcast Live conference in Atlanta last year. Mm-hmm. And I knew that you all were kindred spirits because my, <laughs> my session was opposite a bunch of other sessions that were like make a million dollars with your podcast or grow your Instagram <laughs> following and mine was like let's talk about intersecting oppressions you know so like, <laughs> the people who come to this session are the real deal because they, you know they you heard it here first guys we're the real deal <laughs> so that was that was so that was so cool so yeah i um i the talk that I gave essentially was really kind of encouraging podcasters to think about intersectionality, even if they don't explicitly podcast about social justice topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is that I think, you know, we've in many cases all had the, the experience of listening to a podcast or reading a blog post or, you know, watching a TV show and just it's it being very obvious to us that whoever created that, you know, whatever it is, did not have you in mind, right? Like your identity, your experience, your lens was like not on their radar whenever it was that they were producing. And, you know, not that um, that, that person has malicious intent, but that they're, they're just not like thinking in a way that, that includes you, right? And so thinking, you know, essentially doing intersectionality in, in, in the way that you approach life can, can really help with that as a, as a media producer and as a content producer. So that, that term was coined by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a legal scholar. And in the 1980s, she got very interested in the case of a woman um, named Emma de Graffenried. And I'm going to give like a very short version of the story, but um, everyone who's watching should go watch Kimberly Crenshaw's TED Talk, The Urgency of Intersectionality, um, for, first of all, because she's just a brilliant speaker, and this is truly her, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of 
regurgitating what, what her framework, um, but also because of this moment that we're in, which I'll explain in a minute. So Emma applied for a job at an auto manufacturing plant and did not get the job. And she um, sued under, you know, with the belief that it was because she was a black woman that she did not receive um, employment at this, at this factory. And the judge threw her case out, or the court threw her case out because they said, well, that's not possible that you were discriminated against because that factory employs black men and that factory employs women. So um, the, you know, they're obviously not racist or sexist, so you don't have a case. And, and what um, Emma de Graffinery knew to be true was that the manufacturing side of the plant employed black men and the um, sort of administrative side employed white women. They weren't going to employ her in either of those settings, right? So mm -hmm. that um, judge or that court really didn't see her um, as someone who had intersecting oppression um, that was influencing her employment opportunities, right? And so that invisibility was sort of yet another um, that was going to experience because not only was she not going to get hired, but the legal system wasn't going to see that as a problem, right? And this is something, you know, this is an idea that is rooted in Black feminist thought that, you know, it actually, um, I don't know if um, any of you follow um, Ebony Janice Moore, but she does, uh, I've listened to her talk about how, you know, you can trace this all the way back to, um, you know, women who were enslaved, if, if you're familiar with Sojourner Truth's uh, famous uh, monologue, Ain't I a Woman, she's saying the same thing, right? Like, wow. you know, when you think about that, right? And, wow, and yeah. the Kambahi River statement, which was um, a black feminist statement to, that was published in 1977, essentially talks about the exact same issue. So this is something that black women have been talking about for decades upon decades upon decades. Um, intersectionality is the legal term that sort of summarizes that and then now intersectionality is used much more broadly. Um, and I think a number of, you know, I'm, um, a number of the folks that I follow feel, have expressed concern that they feel like intersectionality is being misused, that it's being used so broadly now that it's kind of um, the, uh, one, of, one of my favorite feminists that I follow is um, named Lucy Sigu, and she talks about how um, the intersectionality being gentrified that it's been kind of co-opted and, you know, particularly by white feminists who are so afraid of being called white feminists that they're like, no, 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 no. I'm an intersectional feminist. I am, I am. But then, mm. yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. are they really? Yeah. So this, so it's an interesting ongoing debate about when, um, when thought and the scholarship sort of becomes co-opted. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just really funny that you said that because I was watching this, um, I guess it wasn't a TED Talk, but TED Talk-esque type of um, speech that Angela Davis gave about bourgeoisie, bourgeois, like bougie feminism. And that I think is exactly what you were just saying about the gentrified side of the feminist movement that is being 
kind of ran by white women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I, um, I would love to find that talk and listen to that talk because I think that there's really something to that. There's a there's a class element that's um, that's mm-hmm. in there that I think really needs to to be um, addressed too. I'll send so. it to you. That would be awesome. Um, I'm glad you said TED Talk too, because that brings me back to the other thing I wanted to say about uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's TED Talk, The Urgency of Intersectionality. Um, one of in her, the urgency that she's speaking of is, you know, she does this activity with the audience where she essentially, they identify themselves if they've heard of, she names and shows pictures of black men who've been murdered by the police. And almost everyone has heard of almost all of them. And then she shows names and pictures of women, black women who've been murdered by the police. And, and it's like, there's like four people in the audience who have heard of all of them and out of this huge audience. So she, she's pointing out that, you know, even now in the way that we report on crimes, that we share stories about crimes, we're not seeing black women and that that's still mm. happening. And that that's, um, you know, erasing this whole experience um, that is, is, is kind of um, perverting our understanding of, of police brutality and that it only affects one kind of person and that's just not true. So, um, so yeah. Right. Wanted to make sure. Brianna that, Taylor. And especially right now, Brianna Taylor, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so to you, what would be your definition of intersectionality? if you had to give a textbook definition. <laughs> oh my gosh, so intersectionality is, oh, I'm putting him on the spot. My, my understanding of it is that it is a um, sort of a, a, both a legal and a social understanding of the invisibility that occurs um, as a result of intersecting and overlapping um, forms of oppression. Okay. And so that the oppression and that, power piece I think is another thing that often gets lost like people will talk about intersectionality but when they really mean multiple identities mm-hmm. um so inter- mm-hmm. having everyone has multiple identities right intersectionality is not referring to your multiple identities it's referring to how your if your multiple identities include multiple forms of oppression then mm-hmm. you may have difficulty for example finding a place in a social movement that you feel like really sees you and respects you. Um, mm-hmm. Because say you are, um, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of an example within um, feminism. Like, you know, say you are uh, a trans, a black trans woman, right? Within, there are, unfortunately, groups with, you know, who call themselves feminists who are anti-trans and like would not necessarily um, or LGBTQ, but they wouldn't necessarily, um, um, right. They, <laughs> like, there's just so many examples, like just in this year, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you, do you want to, or do you want to organize with, um, with women? Do you want to organize with trans women? Do you want to organize with black folks? So do you want to, like, it's like, and will do you, why should you have to split yourself up and choose and will all any of those groups accept all of who you are and I, that's i think something that really is a challenge for a number of um for a number of organizing groups and 
feminine, you know, what's I'm right now I'm researching an, an episode that I want to do um, either at the end of the season or next season about this anti-trans feminist stuff that's going on in England right now, which is so bonkers and so toxic wow. and so bad. Um, and not that that it does not that it's not happening here. Cause I don't want to say that, but it's, it's, people are really out and proud about their an, anti-trans transphobia stance uh, in feminist circles, mm. quote unquote, feminist circles in England. And it's, um, right. It seems so counterproductive to exclude people from something that is supposed to be like, like we're all oppressed. So I don't see why you would exclude a certain type of oppression from your oppression. You know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me either. Yeah. It's like, I have to be different in some way from that group of people. I can't be associated with them. You know, like it doesn't, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's not clicking. Yeah. That's like my most used phrase of 2020. What's not clicking? <laughs> right. There's so much that's not clicking. Right. Yeah. Lose or lose. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, talk to us more about, um, you know, you've been very active with posting and talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, just everything that's going on and your recent blog post that you posted today, which was again, phenomenal. Um, so mm -hmm. talk to us about Thank that. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess um, one thing I did want to mention was just that I've been I am new to the conversation about police abolition. Okay. And I do think that's a really interesting conversation. And I think Me that too. It, yeah, I think part of what is so interesting about it is I'm noticing um, that people will, and I, again, I am not an expert on this, um, but people will have a really strong reaction to the, either the, when you say, you know, defund the police or abolish the police. Um, mm -hmm. And they're like, no, 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 no. We need the police. What are you talking about? Ah. And then if you kind of break down the actual suggestions that have been made by police abolitionists for many, 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 many years, it mm -hmm. really is it's actually, it's often not characterized this way, but in my way of thinking, I think it is kind of an inherently feminist movement because it is very much focused on community taking care of community. So you have people in your community who are trained to help people in a certain way. People need help in so many different kinds of ways. Right now we only have one, you know, system that addresses all of them and it does it very badly, obviously, uh, and dangerously. And so why not like break that up into the different types of help that people need and train people who are in that community to be that source of help in a way that is like, um, you know, provides mutual care and aid for the other uh, members of your community. So that I think is really, um, really has a lot of feminist qualities to it in terms of the, you know, being interconnected, the interdependence and the interconnectedness and, and the community um, based elements of that and, and the priority of care over control and and exercising power so oh, am i still am i still with you there was a little freezing for a second okay so there's yeah, there's that I, so yeah so and i you know i've the thing that i've had luck with talking to folks about is um when there's a fire we call the fire department 
So why would we call the police for like a drug overdose and like a kid who's throwing a tantrum at school and, you know, to catch a, a serial killer and for some homeless guy who's having a mental health breakdown in front of a target or, you know, whatever. Like there are so many different um, things that the police respond to that, that could be mm. much better responded to if the, all the money that we put into just making the police more and more and more and more um, dangerous, essentially giving them more weapons, bigger weapons, making them more, you know, quote unquote powerful, but it's powerful in like a very, very toxic, very, what I see as very patriarchal way of trying to just exercise as much control as possible through use of force. And let's just bring it down a notch. Right. <laughs> right. Like it's not know, the military, it's a police force. That's right. And what we're seeing so often in the, in the footage that's coming out of the protest is the police really escalating um, the situation mm. because they don't feel like they have control. So that's, you know, that's, I think, interesting. Um, I also think it's worth noting that when an idea like this takes off, which I feel like it's so fascinating to see the people in my life who are suddenly like, you know, and this is a, this is a thing too, like suddenly you see you know, these old white grandpas getting knocked down and people are like, defund the police. You know? Right, 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 right. That's the way. Or like have them knee a dog and all of a sudden like laws will be passed. You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting how you have to appeal to like compassion in people. Right, the, the compassion that they um, can access because of, yes. their, yeah, of, their, of their privilege and their whiteness. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, so I'm like just... afraid to interrupt you. I'm just gonna like no, let no, you no, go. no, 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 no. It's, it's it's all good. I'm I believe me. I can just sort of go on and on. Um, <laughs> so I um I think it's important to recognize that this this idea has taken off, but there are people who have been doing this work for years and years and years and years and. Um, Eve Ewing tweeted about this yesterday and I was so like this has been something that I've kind of worried about that I was doing um, that there are you know three women in particular who have really sort of held this down publicly for a long time and that's Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis who has been doing this work for decades Queen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and Mariam Kaba, who is the person that I'm, that's whose work I follow the most. Her Twitter handle, handle is Prison Culture. Um, she's very, very active on Twitter. Um, and she's great. She was, um, last week she was on the Call Your Girlfriend podcast, which I highly recommend that folks listen to that episode because she's just super, her way of talking about this, um, she's phrases all of this much, you know, better than I can. And so I really encourage folks to listen to that because, um, Call you know, girlfriend. she's thought about this very deeply for, for a really long time. Yeah. So, um, Mariam Kaba's episode on call your, call your girlfriend is a must, must listen. So mm, adding it to the list. Heard. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So talk to us about, you know, 
your background in the feminist movement, how you see that playing out with the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on right now, and kind of what you see going forward, what needs to be done, what has been done, what can be changed, and just, you know, go for it. Yeah, oh my gosh, that's, how can I, where should I begin? So I, I, you know, I am somebody who had a very, um, I had a strong, academic preparation in studying like race race politics and black power movements and like political political racism and also um resistance of racism political resistance okay so even though i kind of had this like academic grounding um both in my undergrad and my graduate i really did not apply any any like self um reflection like Hmm. i sort of understood this as like this was like history that i that i got um and i was able to really come to some conclusions about you know critical i didn't no one needed to convince me of like a critical race theory framework like i got that you know a hundred percent that about systems and power and you know um white supremacy hundred percent but in terms of how that showed up in me like recognizing that i was a product of that system and that i would have you know would have internalized any of this i that was um i think in some ways harder for me then it might have been for some other people because I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, I know all this black stuff. I'm good. Like, what? Mm. You know? And so then I I would say it was like in the last, um, really in the last seven years that I got really, you know, I moved to Alabama and I got really, you know, very immersed in, um, you know, the the actual sort of more like work on the ground. And I, that really prompted a lot more of my own self reflection. And, you know, I'm considerably older than both of you. So I'm, <laughs> I'm 45. So that means that, you know, I was in my late thirties before I really took a hard look at sort of my own mm. white supremacy thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel very, um, I, that journey is a familiar one to me and it's also an ongoing one for me. And that's part of why I kind of feel like my role is to sort of, you know, is I, I do a lot of talking about race, racial justice and I try to um, uplift, you know, diverse voices. But I do think that a big part of my role is um, talking to other white people and helping them um, kind of, again, take, take it down a notch. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right. And like, and just kind of take stock of the work that they need to do. So, so that's, um, that has, that's kind of, that's, I guess you asked me about feminism. It's really been more of my journey with racial justice, but I think that has really deepened my feminism because I, mm. I, again, recognize, like you, you were saying before with the whiteboards about everything sort of being connected. Like I was not making those connections before mm. um, as strongly mm-hmm. as, as I you know, now I just sort of see them everywhere, so. I think that's so interesting. Oh, I'm getting Mm -hmm. a sign that this is, we've got about 10 minutes left on our call. Oh my gosh! I know, it's flown by. Um, You know, Lacey yesterday was talking about how 
a lot of millennials are more progressive uh, than their previous generations. And um, even still, we all of millennials have become adults and have kind of grown and have arrived in um, a system of, of oppression. But <laughs> what you were saying about um, recognizing that you are a, you're you're a part of or I guess you've benefited from the systematic oppression mm -hmm. through you know even if you can recognize that that was wrong and learn more and separate yourself from that you're still a product of the system and that I think is a it's kind of a it's a jump to get mm -hmm. there and like you said like you had so much education about about racial justice and political um, political issues about race. And he's, you know, still, it took time for you to recognize like, okay, like this applies to me personally also. Yeah. So even though we're seeing so much change, I wonder, you know, how many people are making that connection? Well, and I, I, I like to think that more people right now are, are starting to make that connection um and one of one of the resources that i always recommend when white people ask me about you know okay well where do i even begin is sort of the the one-two punch of um white fragility by robin d'angelo and me and white supremacy by Layla Saad. and the reason i say that is because white fragility is sort of the like take it down a notch it's okay. You're racist. Everybody know like, I'm sorry, like, that's the thing is like, don't try to pretend you're not because you are. And the people of color in your life know that you are. So just accept that and move on. Like, you know, wow. that's really that's like, if people could just <laughs> get over that, then, mm -hmm. then so many, so much more possibility for learning and growing opens up. Right. But that's a really hard yes. one to own really it, it is right and then but it kind of leaves you with this like okay well i've i've admitted that now well what do i do and then me and white supremacy has this fabulous beautiful set of, of writing prompts essentially where every day you ask yourself questions about you know everything from like wow you know, your your sense of like you know, superiority to your, the way that you feel about, she has a speci um, specific prompts about like, how do you feel when you look at black children? Like what, what does that sort of evoke in you? And like how we sort of, you know, um, really, you know, think of like little kids as being like so cute and then like uh, boys especially, and well actually girls too, look at me my internal, like not being intersectional there, like wow. they turn like 11, 12, and suddenly it's like, we're treating them like adults. We're holding them to these different standards. We're assuming mm -hmm. that they don't need the same levels of support. Um, and so, you know, really asking people to kind of be, get real with themselves about their perceptions of kids, black children particularly. Mm -hmm. um, so those are just a couple of examples. Um, so I just think that those two books go together really well um, for that reason.
It's right. hard to get them now. I I keep seeing that they're like all sold out everywhere you go because everyone's oh, like, I have to tackle this now. I know. It's so, I mean, it's, 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 it's exciting. Great. I hope that people read those books and I hope that they read them in community like what y'all are doing. I just think it's so, that's why I love the model of She Well Read because your whole idea is to read in community, right? And to create space to exchange ideas. And I just think this is another thing that um, Lutzi has turned me on to is these, this idea that you cannot, like the thinking that you can just like order a book and sit in your house and read it and like rid yourself of white supremacy is a very white supremacy sort of right. thing. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Slap the band-aid on it, you know? <laughs> the bushes, right. so you gotta get out, you have to get in community with other people who are doing this work. Right, exactly. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, thank you, Adrian, for coming on and talking with us. Um, if you had any final words, any last things you wanted to say, and of course, shouting out your own podcast, which again, amazing. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Well, um, yeah, so Feminist Hot Dog is the name of yes. the podcast. It is, um, you know, it's, I say it's a podcast about finding joy through feminism and le leading your best feminist life. I think that's still true, but leading, leading your best feminist life right now, this last season in, in particular has been like, you know, digging in deep on some, on some issues that a lot of people don't necessarily find joyful or fun, but that's, right. that's okay. Um, and I will, um, I will just ask, would love to, um, answer questions from any white folks who may be watching who um, who want to talk about their journey. I'm really open to that. And I just, I recently published a blog post today that um, that talks a little bit about my, so I'm sober and have been sober since 2018. And I, in the blog post, draw some comparisons between, you know, kind of wrapping my mind around the work that's necessary to really, um, extricate myself from white supremacy ideas which is ongoing work that you have to do every day forever and drawing some comparisons between the the everyday work of being in recovery and that basically we have to all recognize that white supremacy is like an addiction it is an addiction and so if we um if we as white folks are as serious as we say we are about committing to this work then that means that you're you are this is day in day out for you um, for the rest of your life and that that doesn't have to be a scary thing we actually have a, a recovery model already that we can that can help us sort of wrap our minds around that it doesn't mean that um, it actually means that your life is is going to be um, better because it's you know you, it, it will restore your I mean I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's like white supremacy is is taking our humanity um, so if it's it's getting back something that that is really, really precious to do that work. Right, right. Totally. I agree. And I, I remember just reading your blog post early and being like, wow, this, this is yeah. it. This right here, this is it. So like you said, if you haven't checked out that blog post already or checked out Feminist Hot Dog, be sure to do so. We'll be tagging um, Adrian and all of her work in our post. Thank you so much again, Adrian, for coming on. And we will Love see you guys later. Pleasure. I can't wait to talk to y'all again soon. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube to stay in the loop of all things She Well Read. And remember, if you have anything to add, comment, suggest, feedback, send it all to SheWellReadQA at gmail.com. And for any business inquiries, send us an email to SheWellRead at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe, download, and leave a review for today's episode. And subscribe to us on any platform you listen to podcasts. We love you. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.